السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونشكره ونستعينه ونستغفره ونستهديه ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, as announced today we've gathered for the tafsir of Surah Al-Nasr in the previous months, we've completed the tafsir of the later three surahs of the Quran: Surah Tabbat Yada Abi Lahab, Surah Qul Huwa Allahu Ahad, Surah Four, Surah Qul Aawd Birabil Falak, and Surah Qul Aawd Birabil Nas. Today, inshallah, we will do. The tafsir of Surah Al-Nasr, which is Surah Al-Dajjah Nasrullahi Wal-Fatih. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Al-Dajjah Nasrullahi Wal-Fatih. Raita al-Nasi yadkhuluna fi deenin lahi afwaja. Fasabbih bihamdi rabbika wa astaghfirh. Innahu kana tawwaba. When the help of Allah and conquest come and you see the people entering into the religion of Allah in throngs then celebrate the praise of your Lord and seek his forgiveness verily he is most relenting this surah is known by a few names. Surat Idaja Nasrullah, taken from the very first few words. It's also known as Surat Al Nasr, which means the surah of assistance. It's also known as Surat Al Fatih, the surah of victory or conquest. And it's also known as Surah Al-Tawdi'ah, meaning the Surah of Farewell. All of these meanings, or in some cases the words, are taken from the Surah itself. Surah Al-Dajjah Nasrullah, from the beginning words. Surah Al-Nasr is another word from the Surah. Surah Al-Fatih also. But here, a question may arise that there is already another fam- more famous Surah, one of the longer, earlier surahs, well, one of the longer surahs of the Qur'an, earlier than this, the Surah Al-Fatih. So, 
are both surahs called Surah Al-Fatih. Well, that one is more famously known as Surah Al-Fatih. But this surah is also known by a number of ulama as Surah Al-Fatih. And finally, Surah Al-Tawdi'i, meaning Surah Farewell. The word Tawdi'i does not, or any of its related words, does not appear in the surah. But because part of the meaning of the surah is bidding farewell to the Prophet the surah has also been known as Surah Al-Tawdi'i, meaning the surah of farewell. In any case, most famous name is Surah Al-Nasr, and following that, Surah Ida Jaa Nasrullah. This surah was revealed towards the end of the Prophet life, meaning in the late stage of his Madani life. Most likely, it appears that this surah was revealed after the Prophet in the seventh year of Hijrah, after the Prophet returned from the campaign of Khaybar. And when this surah was revealed to him, a number of things did change, both in the personality and the character of the Prophet ﷺ himself, as well as in the world around him. And the surah heralded many great changes to come. So let's go through the surah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ When the help of Allah and conquest come. In reality, this, these words are a prophecy and a glad tiding to the Prophet ﷺ of imminent divine assistance on a huge scale and of a great victory and conquest to come for the Prophet ﷺ. And when the Prophet ﷺ heard these words, he actually, when he first received the, this revelation, he actually exclaimed, In Medina, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, the help of Allah and victory have arrived. And then he also prophesied the embracing of Islam of many of the people of Yemen on a large scale. So, this surah is actually a glad tiding to the Prophet ﷺ and a prophecy. And what does it prophesize? What does it promise to the Prophet ﷺ? Divine assistance on a huge scale and victory and conquest. Only part of which was the imminent conquest of the city of Mecca. Now in reality, to understand this surah, one has to understand and remind oneself of a number of key salient points of the seerah and the life of Rasulullah If we cast a quick glance at his whole life, what we see is one individual in very difficult circumstances achieving and accomplishing 
something miraculous. Imagine the Prophet was born into was born in the city of Mecca. But his father had already passed away before his birth. So he was born an orphan. He then lost his mother at the age of six. Then he went to the care of his grandfather. He lost his grandfather after two years. He had no brothers or sisters. Then he went into the care of his uncle Abu Talib. Abu Talib had a number of children himself, and despite being a nobleman of the Quraysh, he wasn't wealthy enough to look after everybody. And he just about managed. The Prophet ﷺ, as a child, did not wish to be a burden on him. And from the young and tender age of 10 or 12, he began herding sheep, flocks of sheep, and working as a child shepherd and earning money for himself to feed himself, to maintain himself and to actually assist his uncle. And then in the next few years he did accompany his uncle on trading trips to Sham, modern day Syria and Jordan and Palestine etc. And then at the age of 25 the Prophet married Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha and then this took him till the age of 40 now in all of those years the Prophet didn't assume any responsible position the political state of Mecca was such that even though he was one of the clan of the Quraysh his particular clan the Banu Hashim the clan of his clan, the clan of his uncle Abu Talib, who was a chief of Banu Hashim, it was one of the weaker clans politically. And in terms of wealth, it was one of the poorer clans. But it was one of the clans of the Quraysh. And so, although they had honor and dignity as a clan, they did not have any, they did not have significant political power or even great wealth. And he had no brothers or sisters. He passed, uh, his father had passed away before his birth. His mother passed away at the age of six. At a very young age, he moved from house to house before finally settling in with his uncle. Even when he decided to get married at the age of 25, he married a woman 15 years his senior who had been married twice previously widowed twice with children from both previous marriages. That was his life. On the surface, looking at it from a non-religious, non-Islamic perspective, on the surface, nothing in his life till that day would have shown the people of Mecca or beyond and the people of the world that he would become what he did become. And that he achieved what he did achieve. Of course, as far as his personal character was concerned, it was widely recognized in Mecca 
that he was a man of honesty and integrity, a man of truthfulness and trust. But in terms of power and influence, until that stage at least, Rasulullah had not displayed or demonstrated anything, said or claimed anything, which was an ordinary to the Meccan, to the Meccans and to the Quraysh. And then all of a sudden, at the age of 40, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came to them and said, I have received a revelation from Allah and I am a messenger of Allah. And then things changed. And then if we look at the first few years of his Meccan life, after prophethood, from the age of 40 till 53, in the first few years, very few people took him seriously. And it was only when he started winning a number of followers that people began taking him more seriously. And now, ridicule started. They began mocking him, ridiculing him, accusing him of being a magician, a sorcerer, a soothsayer. And then, continuously, as more and more people embraced Islam, Rasulullah and the Muslims began facing severe persecution. Just mere five years into his prophethood, when he was 45 years of age, in the fifth year of his prophethood, Rasulullah felt compelled to send away a number of his followers on their first emigration to Abyssinia so that they could believe in their faith and practice it safely. And those who were unable to travel, unfortunately, they remained behind. Those who, were, who did not have the power and the influence of their own clans and tribes were persecuted severely. In many cases, this led to ostracization, isolation, excommunication. For many, it was even worse physical torture, and for a number, actual murder. And then as you move along from the age of 45 onwards, approximately in the 47th year of his prophethood, the Quraysh, now infuriated that the influence of the Prophet ﷺ on his followers was such that more and more people were being attracted to his message and his faith, they now took off their gloves and they demanded the handover of the Prophet ﷺ from his clan of Banu Hashim. When Banu Hashim refused, the rest of the Quraysh plotted against them and together they told, the, told Banu Hashim that unless you hand over Muhammad ibn Abdullah, we will excommunicate your whole clan. But Abu Talib, his uncle, accepted the excommunication and the isolation from the rest of the Quraysh, but he did not entertain the possibility of handing over the Prophet So the whole of Banu Hashim was excommunicated. Thus began the boycott. And along with Banu Hashim, their fellow uh, clan of the Quraysh, the Banu Muttalib, they were joined also in this excommunication. So it was Banu Hashim and Banu Muttalib. 
and that just two clans out of the whole of the Quraysh. This then led to the two and a half to three years later when the Prophet ﷺ was in his 50th year of life and 10th year of prophethood. Abu Talib passed away. Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha passed away. And now the Prophet ﷺ was extremely vulnerable because he no longer had the protection of Abu Talib, his uncle. And as I explained in the previous surah, in Surah Abi Lahab, Abu Lahab, one of his other uncles, he assumed the chief position of Banu Hashim. So Banu Hashim came under the control and the influence of Abu Lahab, and he was hostile to the Prophet ﷺ. Now the Prophet ﷺ was extremely vulnerable. He then even went to Ta'if in the 50th year of prophethood. By now the boycott had ended. But when he went to Ta'if in the hope of securing their protection, they rejected him. They sent out the street urchins after him. They pelted him with stones until he bled and was knocked down unconscious. When he returned to Mecca, he was only able to re-enter the city of Mecca after a pledge of protection from another one of the Quraysh. And then each year thereafter, the Prophet ﷺ would meet with some of the people of Medina in the first year, six, in the 52nd year, uh, 12, and then only in the third, in the third year after that, approximately 75 people of Medina. And it was only then that he did hijrah from Medina, to, from Makkah to Mukarramah to Medina. If you imagine, just look at his 13 years in Mecca. He had to actually leave the city on the, in the 50th year of prophethood, seeking protection from the people of Ta'if, but they rejected him. Because he no longer had the protection of his own clan, Banu Hashim. Of course, his own immediate family members, and those Muslims who were with him from Banu Hashim, they... Would, they had pledged to protect him, but they were only individuals, not as a clan. The clan officially was headed by Abu, Ta- Abu Lahab. So Abu Lahab refused to help the Prophet ﷺ. In fact, he was one of his chief enemies. Imagine, that was the position of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. And then when he did hijrah to Medina from Mecca, when he arrived in Medina, the number of people who had joined him from Mecca were only approximately 70. There were only 70 to 80 muhajirun from the city of Mecca. And the rest were Ansar from the city of Medina. But even in Medina, in the initial years, the Prophet ﷺ did not enjoy such power and influence in the initial beginning years. Then if you look at the whole history... In the second year of Hijrah, there was the Battle of Badr. The Meccans were so confident of their victory that they took singing girls and dancing girls along with them for the inevitable, in their view, for the inevitable party that would follow their victory over the Muslims and their crushing of the Prophet ﷺ and his followers. And if you recall prior to that, in the city of Mecca, just before he left, one of the catalysts of his departure from the city of Mecca, though it wasn't the cause, was that the Quraysh finally fed up in their view of the Prophet ﷺ. They decided to end his 
story once and for all by a collective act of murder in which all the different clans of the Quraysh would participate and therefore his blood and the responsibility for that blood and murder would be distributed across a number of clans of Quraysh and therefore they would not be collectively held responsible or be retaliated against. So they sought to imprison him, as Allah mentions in a verse of the Quran, or to kill him. And thus Prophet ﷺ left the city. It was only a miraculous victory in the Battle of Badr that led to the Quraysh returning defeated to Mecca. Otherwise, they were quite confident that they were, they were assured victory. They even took along their merrymaking and partying uh, dancing girls with them. And then in the third year, there was a battle of Uhud. Again, it was a very precarious situation because the Prophet ﷺ didn't march against Mecca. The Meccans marched against Medina in order to avenge their fallen in the battle of Badr a year earlier. And in the battle of Badr, there were just over 300 Muslims and over a thousand or so of the Quraysh. But in the battle of Uhud, the Quraysh brought together an army of 3,000. And they marched not just to the region of Medina, but all the way to the city of Medina. And they camped at the base of Mount Uhud. And the Prophet ﷺ, for the first time, the city of Medina was now under threat. To the extent that even the hypocrites and even the non-Muslims agreed to taking part in the battle to defend the city. And the Prophet ﷺ was actually contemplating and discussing with the companions what to do. Should they remain in the center and heart of the city and defend it from within and therefore treat it as a siege? Or should they actually go out of their local area and face the Meccans in open battle. The situation was so precarious that the Prophet ﷺ was actually discussing with the companions what to do, one of the two possibilities of even remaining within the city. And then, eventually when it was decided to march, to fight them in open battle, the Prophet ﷺ fought them. The Battle of Uhud itself was not an outright victory for the Muslims. Muslims suffered greatly. And the Quraysh felt that although they had not scored a decisive victory, at least they had avenged their fallen in the Battle of Badr. And then they returned. Then, within the city of Medina itself, the Prophet ﷺ experienced a number of threats. And then come the fifth year of Hijrah, for the first time, the Quraysh managed to gather an army of over 10 or approximately 12,000, approximately 10,000 of many of the different tribes, the Quraysh and various other tribes from around Medina. And they all marched against the Muslims, against the city of Medina. They besieged the city and for the first time Medina was actually placed under siege, a prolonged siege. Allah describes the situation in the fifth year of Hijrah at the time of the Battle of the Trench, as it came to be known, in the following words. 
إذ جاءوكم من فوقكم ومن أسفل منكم وإذ زاغت الأبصار وبلغت القلوب الحناجر وتظنون بالله الظنون هنالك ابتلي المؤمنون وزلزل وزلزال شديدا Remember when they came actually from above you and from beneath you meaning from the, above from the city of Medina and below from all directions against the city of Medina and remember when the eyes became fixated in horror and fright and remember when the hearts leapt up to the throats in fear and you began thinking all kinds of thoughts about Allah then on that occasion the believers were tested and they were shaken a great shaking so that was just the in the fifth year of hijrah till this point the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the muslims were always on the defensive always always under threat constant threat persecuted threatened many of them tortured some murdered driven out of this compelled to emigrate either to abyssinia or eventually to medina and then even after the hijra to be fought against in the battle of badr to be fought against in the battle of uhud and then for their whole city to be laid siege to in the battle of the trench in the fifth year of hijra it was only then that once they had departed after the battle of the trench it wasn't really a battle because no great fighting on a large scale took place when the different factions of the enemy broke up and they returned to their respective locations in Arabia and when the Quraysh returned to Mecca the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam actually turned around and told the companions that from this moment onwards they will never march against as we will always march against them and it was then that the tide turned and in the 6th year of hijrah the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam traveled to mecca peacefully with the peaceful intention of performing umrah he had seen a dream and in that dream allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had told him that you will re-enter the city of mecca performing umrah well not performing umrah but لتدخلون المسجد الحرام ان شاء الله امنين محلقين رؤوسكم ومقصرين لا تخافون that you will enter the city of mecca and enter the sacred masjid of allah in mecca how shaving your heads and clipping short your hair which was one of the rites of the pilgrimage whether it was a great pilgrimage of hajj or the lesser pilgrimage of umrah in such a state that you would be secure and fearless allah showed the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam such a dream and he informed the companions that allah has shown me a dream that we will return to mecca now before i continue again we need to understand what mecca meant to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and to the noble companions mecca was their birthplace it was their home city it was a place where they for the muhajirun where they they were born where they had grown up where they had their families their homes their possessions it was their home city and along with the worldly attachment of belonging to one's 
birthplace, one's home, one's locality and neighborhood, and one's home city, there was the added factor of al-Masjid al-Haram, the house of Allah, the Kaaba, which for them meant much more than it could have ever meant to the Quraysh and the pagans. So when the Prophet ﷺ did hijrah from Mecca to Medina, Rasulullah himself was grieved. He was immensely grieved. In fact, on the way to Medina, during the hijrah, he stopped at a place known as Juhfa. He just paused there. And he was longingly looking back towards Mecca. Obviously, he was very far, but in the direction of Mecca, he was longingly looking back in the direction of Mecca, praying to Allah to return him to his beloved city from which he had to flee in dark, under cover. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to him then in Jahfa, on the way to Medina, إِنَّ الَّذِي فَرَضَ عَلَيْكَ الْقُرْآنَ لَرَادُكَ إِلَى مَعَادٍ That indeed he who has appointed and revealed the Qur'an to you, he will most assuredly return you to the abode, meaning to Makkah al-Mukarramah. So the Prophet ﷺ, before he entered the city of Medina, he had already been given a promise by Allah that Allah would return him to the city of Makkah. And in Medina, the Muhajirun, they found the climates of Medina to be unpalatable, unfavorable. Many of them suffered fever. And the reason was that the, there was a huge difference between the two climates. Makkah was arid and dry. Medina was very humid because of the oasis. And as a result, the Makkans often contracted fever and a number of other illnesses. And Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha famously relates that many of the muhajirun would become debilitated with illness. And in one house, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would be lying, suffering from fever. Bilal radiallahu anhu would be lying, suffering from fever. Bilal radiallahu anhu would recite couplets of poetry, remembering, uh, reminiscing the times that he would have spent in the various areas of Mecca and its surroundings and vicinity, and lamenting their distance from Mecca, and constantly praying that, oh, when will we see this part of Mecca? When will we see this valley, these waters near Mecca, etc.? So the Prophet ﷺ, when he noticed how grieved his closest companions, the Muhajirun, were at departing from Mecca and having to take up residence as almost as refugees in Medina. The Prophet ﷺ prayed to Allah to banish the fever and the illness of Medina and eventually Allah did so. That's another story in itself. But the, the Muslims weren't able to settle into Medina very easily. They constantly longed for a return to Mecca al-Mukarramah. For many reasons, for religious reasons, because of Al-Masjid Al-Haram, the Kaaba, and because of the Holy City, and for personal reasons. That was their birthplace, their home city. This was the city of their families. So when in the sixth year of Hijrah, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam told them that I, will, I have seen a dream, and Allah has promised me that you will return to Mecca and you will be able to enter Al-Masjid Al-Haram performing the rites of the pilgrimage they were elated 
And when the Prophet ﷺ announced that he was to go for Umrah, the Prophet ﷺ was joined by many of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. <coughs> and they traveled in the state of Ihram to Makkah al-Mukarramah. The Quraysh, to cut it very short, the Quraysh prevented them from entering in fact, the Quraysh marveled at the boldness of the Prophet ﷺ. And they prevented them from entering. They actually sent out a cavalry force under the command of Khalid ibn al-Walid. So a contingent of cavalry came out from Mecca and attempted to stop the Muslims from even coming close anywhere. But the Prophet ﷺ, along with the Sahaba anhum, were able to bypass the uh, cavalry units until they actually came very close to the city of Mecca. There they camped at Hudaybiyah and the Quraysh refused to allow them entry. Uh, we all know the story Uthman, Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu sent. There were rumors of his being attacked and killed. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam took the pledge from the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and <coughs> eventually the Quraysh sent a few people as a delegation to negotiate with the Prophet ﷺ, and then a treaty was concluded. That was a treaty of Hudaybiyah. And if we consider some of the key articles of the treaty, there would be 10 years of a cessation of hostilities. For 10 years, no side would attack the other. Or no side would ally, align themselves with anyone who would attack any of the two parties. So there was a truce for a whole ten years. They would not initiate any hostilities, they would not enter into any hostilities against each other. And there were various other articles. Another key article of that treaty, of that truce, was that people were free. The different clans and tribes from the whole of Arabia were free to enter into any political and military alliance with any of the two parties. So any tribe could enter into an alliance with the city of Mecca. Any tribe could enter into an alliance with the city of Medina. Because Medina was now considered a city-state if you look at the, the articles of the treaty. Of course, overall, the, art, the treaty was actually disfavorable to the Muslims and strongly one-sided and in favor of the Quraysh. And that's why the companions were quite dejected and despondent, even after the conclusion of the treaty. Anyway, the treaty was signed, and the Prophet ﷺ, part of the treaty was they would not be able to enter the city of Mecca in the sixth year of Hijrah, but they would have to return the following year in the seventh year of Hijrah and perform uh, a qada of the missed Umrah. So the Quraysh was still successful in preventing them from entering the city of Mecca in the sixth year of Hijrah. The Muslim, the Prophet wasallam, after the signing of the treaty, returned to his tent. He told the Sahaba radiallahu anhum that we must break our, we must end our ihram here and therefore shave your heads, come out of the sacred state of ihram and slaughter and sacrifice your animals. But none of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum moved. Many of them were in shock at what had happened. That now the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa had signed a treaty. 
with the Quraysh. And part of that treaty was so one-sided. Part of that treaty was, in fact, the Prophet ﷺ tolerated everything. When signing the treaty, Prophet ﷺ dictated, this is a treaty between such and such of the Quraysh and Muhammad ibn Abdullah, Muhammad Rasulullah. So the delegation of the Quraysh objected and said, strike out Rasulullah. Because if, if we recognized you as a messenger of Allah, we would have never opposed you. So the Prophet ﷺ had Rasulullah removed and it was simply a treaty between Muhammad the son of Abdullah and the Quraysh. In fact, again, it was so one-sided. Whilst they were signing the treaty, part of the treaty was that any, anyone who embraced Islam from Mecca or from any one of its allied tribes, if anyone embraced Islam from the Quraysh, from Mecca or from any of the allied tribes, and they then secretly made their way to Medina, the Muslims were under an obligation were under an obligation by virtue of that treaty to return them to Mecca. But if anyone from Medina decided to leave Medina or apostate and renounce their faith and go to Mecca or any one of the other tribes, then they were under no obligation to return them to, to, return them to Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ agreed to that as well. Whilst that was being agreed, a number of Muslims who had embraced Islam from Mecca, but who had not yet done hijrah, they arrived at the camp. And in front of the Prophet ﷺ, they begged the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims to take them into their protection and to take them with them to Medina. And yet, the Quraysh, because the treaty had been signed, they said, by virtue of the treaty, you must return these people as well. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, those few from Mecca, they were on the floor, in the dust. They were weeping, begging. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhum from Medina were watching them and weeping. And they were begging the Prophet wasallam to allow them to take them back. But because the treaty had been agreed, the Prophet wasallam had no choice but to honor that article. And in front of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, those few Muslims from Mecca were actually shackled and chained and dragged back to Mecca al-Mukarramah. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam accepted so much. And therefore to the Sahaba, it appeared to be so one-sided to the Meccans that they were dejected. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to them, break camp, uh, end your state of ihram, and slaughter your animals and shave your heads. Sahaba radiallahu anhum didn't move. They were shocked. They were in a total state of shock. Dejected, despondent. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa returned to his tent. Umm Salama radiallahu anha was with him. He was saddened. She suggested to him that why don't you, instead of telling them, why don't you set an example yourself? Quietly go out, shave your head, and slaughter your animal, and they will follow suit. The Prophet ﷺ did exactly that, came out, he shaved, had his noble head shaved, and, well, he, he sacrificed the animal, 
had his noble head shaved and came out of the state of Ihram. When they saw him, one by one, slowly the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum joined him. Then as they were returning, Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu who had raised objections a number of times, he came again to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, but the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam wouldn't speak to him. Then the next morning, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam summoned Umar radiyallahu and he said to him, last night Allah revealed to me Surah Al-Fatih, that indeed we have secured a great victory for you. A clear victory for you. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said, Ya Rasulullah, is this a victory? The Treaty of Hudaybiyyah, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, yes, it is a victory. Many of the Sahaba radiallahu anhu would then later say to the later Muslims that you all treat the conquest of Mecca as the great victory and conquest. Whereas we, we have always considered the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah to be the great victory and conquest. Even though the conquest of Mecca was a conquest. But we always treated the victory of Hudaybiyyah, the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah as the great victory. And this is why I've gone through this lengthy explanation. And that's the content of Surah Al-Fatih. إِنَّا فَتَحْنَا لَكَ فَتْحٍ The whole surah, the victory spoken about in that surah is the victory of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And the victory spoken about in this surah that was revealed a few months after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is the victory of Makkah Al-Mukarramah. Both were victories. And the conquest in terms of the occupation of the city of Mecca came after the revelation of this surah, and that's what was prophesied in Surah Al-Nasr. But the greatest victory, even in the view of the companions, was actually the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And indeed, the Sahaba anhum couldn't understand it at the time. But the Prophet wasallam told them, indeed, this is a victory, because a lot changed. After the victory, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, there was a cessation of hostilities. There was no further fighting between the Meccans and the, uh, and the people of Medina. After that followed the conquest of Khaybar. After Khaybar, Fadak. And then, in that short period between the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and the conquest of Mecca, in the eighth year of Hijrah, a lot happened. In the following year, the Prophet ﷺ performed Umratul Qadha. The Umrah. He was able to re-enter the city of Mecca peacefully in the state of Ihram, fulfilling his dream, the dream that Allah had showed him. Then, in that short period between the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and the conquest of Mecca, many people embraced Islam. The, the Meccans, for the first time, had an opportunity, along with many of the allied, along with their allies and many of the other neutral tribes, of being able to judge the people of Mecca and judge the people of Medina without the specter of battle, without the cloud of war. And many began embracing Islam. Many of the chief Meccans began embracing Islam. Khalid ibn al-Walid radiyallahu anh, Amr ibn al-As, and others also embraced Islam in that period. The Prophet ﷺ was able to send out ambassadors and emissaries to 
various parts of the world, to Abyssinia, to, well, not to Abyssinia, but to Alexandria, to Egypt, to Rome, to Byzantine Rome, to Persia. Many other tribes began embracing Islam around Medina, apart from some of the people of Mecca. And to give you an example, in the when the Prophet performed, went to Mecca in the sixth year of Hijrah, just before the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, how many Sahaba عنهم, were with him? They numbered in their hundreds. According to one estimate, there were approximately 1,400. According to another estimate, there were only 700. But whether it's 700 or 1,400, there were no more than 1,400, 1,500. Yet two years later, at the conquest of Mecca, when the Prophet ﷺ returned to Mecca, he had an army of 10,000. So that brief period after the truce was in itself a period of victory. Now, what actually led to the conquest of Mecca that Allah speaks about in here, in this surah? And when Allah says, when the help of Allah comes, this help is not just about a single instance of help at the time of the conquest of Mecca, but this is actually for that whole period from the time of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah all the way till the end of the Prophet wasallam's life. Now, what actually led to the conquest of Mecca? As part of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Quraysh and the Prophet ﷺ had agreed that both parties were able to enter into alliances with any tribe. So those who wished to align themselves with the Quraysh could do so, those who wished to align themselves with the Muslims could do so. That treaty rested as it was. Sometime later, not too long thereafter, a huge tribe which lived near Mecca, known as the Khuza'a. The Khuza'a decided to enter into an alliance with the Prophet ﷺ, even though most of them were not Muslim. Only a few of them were Muslim, if that, most of them. It was a non-Muslim tribe. There was another very smaller tribe, much smaller, known as the Banu Bakr bin Abdi Manat. And this small tribe was allied to the Quraysh. So you had the huge tribe of Khuza'a now entering into an alliance with the city-state of Medina. And you had the Banu Bakr bin Abdi Manat, another smaller tribe that was already aligned with the Quraysh in Mecca. These two tribes, Banu Bakr bin Abdi Manat, smaller tribe allied to the Quraysh, and the Banu Khuza'a, the huge tribe, allied to Medina, they had a feud from before. As part of that feud, the Banu, remember, Banu Bakr bin Abd, both tribes were non-Muslim. Both tribes were non-Muslim. So here you have a story of four tribes, the Quraysh, well, three main tribes and fourth, another group. Your first group, you have the group of Muslims in Medina. The second party here was the Quraysh of Mecca. Then you had the tribe of Khuzar, and then you had the tribe of Banu Bakr bin Abdi Manat. Apart from the Muslims of Medina, all of the tribes were non-Muslim. So, the Banu Bakr bin Abdi Manat, with some assistance 
of the Quraysh in Mecca, they attacked the tribe of Khuzar. It, it wasn't an all-out war, but it was an ambush of a small party on some members of the Khuzar. And they were killed. After this attack, the Banu Bakr bin Abd Manat, they returned to their tribal location near Mecca. And some of them actually took refuge for protection in the city of Mecca itself. The Khuzar wanted to take revenge. But they knew, and this is how the tribal system of Arabia worked. The Khuzar, despite being a larger tribe, couldn't just simply go out and attack and take revenge against the small, much, much smaller tribe of Banu Bakr bin Abd Banat. Because they were allies of the Quraysh. So if Khuzar wanted to take revenge on the smaller tribe of Banu Bakr bin Abd Manat, that would mean all-out war with the Quraysh. So the Khuzar appealed to their allies, the Muslims of Medina, and they approached Prophet ﷺ, and they said to him that we have been attacked, some of our tribe have been killed in an ambush, now we want, as by virtue of our alliance, we want you to help us. Abu Su- the Quraysh knew now that the Muslims would get involved. And it shows the change of events. Imagine, barely six year, seven years before, barely seven to eight years before, the Quraysh were all powerful in Mecca. They had driven out the Muslims to Abyssinia. They had driven out the Muslims to Medina. They were now in a position... Because of the fear of the Quraysh, Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was traveling, this is eight years before, was moving around visiting tribe after tribe after tribe to request their protection. No one was willing to give their protection to Muhammad the son of Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When he went to the city of Ta'if, just nearby, the city of Ta'if actually drove this man out. That was barely seven and a half to eight years ago. Now, imagine the change of events. The people in the city of Mecca conferred amongst themselves and they said, our allies, the Banu Bakr bin Abd Manat, have attacked an ally of the Muslims. Now we are fearful that, forget the Banu Bakr bin Abd Manat, forget the Khuza'ah, the ones we fear are the Muslims of Medina. If they launch an attack against us, we will not be able to withstand. So what do we do? All kinds of suggestions were made. Eventually they agreed that we should go to Medina and beg for the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah to be renewed and extended and ratified and plead with the Muslims not to assist their allies of the Khuzar. So Abu Sufyan came to Medina. The Prophet ﷺ paid him no attention. He went to Abu Bakr who paid him no attention. He went to Umar who paid him no attention. He even went to his daughter, Ramla, Umm Habiba, the daughter of Abu Sufyan. She paid him no attention. In fact, the story is, he went to visit her, and he. this is the first time he is seeing his daughter, Ramla, after she left Mecca, and travelled to Abyssinia, did hijrah with her husband, then husband Ubaidullah 
bin Jahsh, who died in Abyssinia. Then she married the Prophet ﷺ in absence while she was there in Abyssinia. Now she had arrived in Medina. So Abu Sufyan had not seen his daughter for approximately 15 years. 13 years. So the Prophet ﷺ, approximately 15 years. So Abu Sufyan went to visit his daughter. When he met her, he went to sit down on some bedding. She quickly pulled the bedding from underneath him. <clears throat> and he said to her, he was, a, he, was, he was very eloquent. He said to her, my daughter, I don't understand. Have you pulled the bedding from beneath me? Because I am too good for the bedding or the bedding is too good for me. So she replied by saying, no, I have pulled the bedding from beneath you because, O oh Father, this is the bedding of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He then refused to stay in the house and all he turned around and said to her was, لَقَدْ أَصَابَكِ شَرٌ بَعْدِ الْإِسْلَامِ That after embracing Islam, some evil has touched you. And then he left. This Abu Sufyan, the leader of Mecca, the leader in Uhud, the leader in the campaign of the trench, the leader till that day, he under whose command were armies, who, who could almost be considered the uncrowned king of Mecca, he now came to beg Rasulullah to ratify the treaty. He was given no audience by the messenger وسلم, by Abu Bakr Umar or eventually even by his own daughter. And he then returned to Mecca with the news for the people of the Quraysh that Muhammad ibn Abdullah is refusing to ratify the treaty. Abu Sufyan actually played a great part in what happened next. He actually convinced many of the Quraysh in Mecca to submit to the Prophet And this is why barely a few months later, the Prophet, two, two, three months later, the Prophet وسلم, having refused to ratify the treaty and with full authority of retaliating against Mecca and assisting the allied tribe of Khuza'a, he marched from Medina. By the time the Prophet وسلم, reached Mecca, there were 10,000 soldiers. How did the Prophet وسلم, enter the city? Imagine Allahu Akbar. This is a city that persecuted him, that drove him and his followers out, that unlawfully, after driving them out, claimed their homes, their possessions. This is a city that, mur- that tortured some of his followers, murdered many of them, without, without any provocation. This was a city that fought against him, that raised other tribes and instigated them, incited them against him, that laid siege to his city of Medina. This was a city that headed a constant battle against him, a war for years on end. Now the Prophet ﷺ is re-entering the city, not as a refugee, not as someone who fled, not in fear, but as an all-outright conqueror. How does he enter the city of Mecca? What does he say? What does he do? He divided his army into four groups. They entered the city in four factions. 
some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were intent on revenge because they were impassioned by what they had suffered and experienced over all these years. And some of them made a few comments, such as, today is the final battle, the great battle. When some of the Quraysh, non-Muslims, came to the Prophet ﷺ and said to him, this is what some of your followers are saying, Rasulullah ﷺ said, he made a play on the words. The, the words of the great battle were malhama, that today is the day of malhama, the great battle. The Prophet ﷺ said, no, today is not the day of great malhama, today is the day of marhama. He changed the lamb to ara, meaning today is not the day of the great battle, today is the day of mercy and compassion. He declared a general amnesty. Whoever takes refuge in the sit- in, in al-Masjid al-Haram is safe. Whoever takes refuge in the uh, grand house of Abu Sufyan is safe. Whoever takes refuge with any of the Muslims is safe. Whoever any of the Muslims give, gives protection and refuge to anyone, they are safe. Whoever does not raise arms is safe. Whoever puts down his weapons is safe. It was a general amnesty. The only people who died after that in battle were those who actually fought against the Muslims, despite the general amnesty of the Prophet wasallam. They approached, how did the Prophet ﷺ enter the city of Mecca as a conqueror? Allahu Akbar. He entered with his head, hung and bowed so low that his noble head was almost touching the horn of his saddle. In humility, in submission, a man stood quaking before him. And the Prophet ﷺ pacified him, calmed him and told him, there is no need for you to fear me. I am but the son of a woman who used to eat dried meat. Remembering his mother. They stood before him and they said, O one of us, one of the fellow Quraysh, we are at your mercy and disposal. What will you do to us today? Prophet ﷺ said, لا تثريب عليكم اليوم يغفر الله لكم وهو أرحم الراحمين. Today I say to you what Yusuf عليه السلام said to his brothers. Today there is no reprimand against you. Allah will forgive you your sins. And indeed, He is the most merciful of those who can show mercy. There was a general amnesty, no bloodshed. The only fighting that took place. Out of the four groups, the four factions of the army, it was only the faction of Khalid ibn al-Walid which, which experienced a bit of fighting by a few people who resisted. Otherwise, there was no fighting. Prophet ﷺ declared a general amnesty. He left everything as it was. Even the keys of the Kaaba, Ali radiallahu anhu tried to take. The Prophet ﷺ commanded him to return the keys of the Kaaba to the family that was responsible for them. And then the Prophet ﷺ went on to Hunayn after the victory of Hunayn to Ta'if to lay the siege. After Ta'if did not submit, did not, did not capitulate. They managed to withstand the siege. But then the Prophet ﷺ left them, went to Ji'rana, and from Ji'rana he performed the final Umrah. Uh, well, he performed the Umrah of Ji'rana, and then he returned to Al Madinatul Manawah. Then was the year of the 
Prophet ﷺ, then was the year known as the year of deputations or delegations. One of the reasons why the conquest of Mecca was so important is that many tribes of the, of the whole of Arabia, they were watching this battle between the city-state of Mecca and the city-state of Medina. And they were waiting. They did not challenge or oppose the Prophet ﷺ, but nor were they inclined to him. And many of them were saying, he claims to be a prophet. But we shall wait and see. He is in a constant battle with the people of Mecca. And Mecca is a sacred city. Allah def- this is what the Arabs were saying throughout Arabia. Allah defended the city of Mecca against the armies of Habasha, Abyssinia, and against the armies of Abraha in the famous incident of the elephant. Elephants, and what, which is mentioned in Surah al So Mecca was protected by Allah through divine protection. So let us wait and see. If he is defeated by the Meccans, then he is an imposter. But if, despite the divine protection of Mecca by Allah, he is able to take Mecca, then he is a prophet. We shall follow him. So many of them waited till the conquest of Mecca. And when Mecca was conquered, the whole of Arabia began arriving at the doorstep of the Prophet ﷺ. Deputations from tribes, delegations, leaders, chieftains, they came to submit to the Prophet ﷺ. I mentioned about the city of Ta'if. Ta'if did not capitulate. On that occasion, the Prophet ﷺ, despite laying siege to the city of Ta'if, and having siege equipment at his disposal, and bombarding the walls of the city of Ta'if, he was unable to conquer the city. So the Prophet ﷺ withdrew and moved to Ji'rana, performed Umrah and then returned. But it wasn't a failure. Because what happened? The city of Ta'if remained within their walls. But not too long thereafter, the chieftains came to the Prophet ﷺ at his doorstep in Medina and they submitted the keys of the city. That was part of the delegations. So the year 9 of the Hijra, of Hijra was known as a year of deputations, the year of delegations from all over Arabia. People embraced Islam in droves, in throngs, in huge groups. Tribes submitted to the authority of the Muslims. Even some tribes to the north who didn't embrace Islam, they st- like on, on the occasion of Tabuk, they still submitted to the authority of the Muslims. This is a summary of what Surah Al-Nasr refers to when Allah says, when the victory of Allah, when the help of Allah arrives, and when conquest comes, then what should the Prophet ﷺ do? Let's look at that now. Allah says, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ When the help of Allah and when conquest come. وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسِ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا and you see the people entering into the religion of Allah. Afwajan in troops, in droves, in throngs, in armies, in hordes. Then what should you do, O Messenger of Allah? فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرَ Then hymn the praise of your Lord. I, to express your gratitude. وَاسْتَغْفِرَ 
and seek his forgiveness. إِنَّهُ كَانَ tawwaba Indeed, he, Allah, is most relenting. Now apparently the words are just that, be thankful to Allah and seek his forgiveness. But the meaning is much more profound, much deeper. The best way to understand this is by the following story related by Imam Bukhari and by others. Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhum says, Amir al-Mu'mineen Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu would gather the elders and the veterans of the Battle of Badr as his personal confidants and as his counsellors. So he had a, a, a group of counsellors and confidants. They were all made up of the chief senior Muslims and the veterans of the Battle of Badr. They were his most trusted companions. And along with these grand elders of the Sahaba, Abdullah ibn Abbas says that Umar would invite me also to sit with them. And Abdullah ibn Abbas was very young, extremely young. In fact, when Umar would include him, he may still have been in his late teens. So, Abdullah ibn Abbas says some of the elders felt something, that why does Amir al-Mu'mineen include Abdullah ibn Abbas with the veterans of Badr, with us seniors? And one of them, some of them actually spoke up and said to Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, we have sons his age, why do you include only him amongst the elders and exclude all the other young men of our families and of the community? So one day, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu say, Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu says, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, whilst I was present, he posed a question. And I only think that he did this in order to demonstrate something to the companions, to the veterans. So he said to the whole group, What do you remember, what do you know of the meaning of the surah, Ida ja'a nasrullahi wal fatah? Till the end. So he began asking all of the companions, what do you say about this surah? So some of them remained silent. Others expressed the apparent meaning. That the meaning of the surah is that when the help of Allah and victory and conquest arrive, then hymn the praise of your Lord and seek his forgiveness. So he asked a few of them. The others remained silent. Then... Sayyidina Umar turned to Abdullah ibn Abbas and said to him, O oh Abdullah, what do you say about this surah? So Abdullah ibn Abbas said, When the help of Allah and victory conquest arrive, then, O oh Messenger of Allah, this is the sign of your coming death. This is a sign from Allah that your death is imminent. Sayyidina Umar turned to the other companions and said to them, I know about this surah only what Abdullah ibn Abbas knows. Which is that the deeper meaning of this surah is a message to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that O Messenger of Allah, you are a prophet of Allah and his messenger. You are not a king. You are not a monarch. You are not a worldly leader. Allah has sent you with a very specific purpose. 
So when you achieve what Allah has sent you to achieve, when the victory of Allah and His assistance arrive, when you have conquered, when everything is laid at your feet, O Messenger of Allah, this is not the time for you to remain behind and enjoy the fruits of your victory. Rather, your mission is accomplished. Now it is time for you to prepare yourself for the meeting of your Lord. And that's the meaning of فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرَ The hymn, the praise of your Lord and seek His forgiveness. Not that the Prophet ﷺ wouldn't praise Allah before that. Nor that he wouldn't seek Allah's forgiveness before that. In fact, the Prophet Aisha radiallahu anha says, كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يذكر الله على كل أحيانه The Messenger of Allah would remember Allah at all times. At all times. Without exception. So now, what is he being told? He was already praising Allah. He was already seeking Allah's forgiveness. Rather, this meaning wasn't just understood by Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. It was actually understood by the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah himself narrates that when this surah was revealed, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam summoned his daughter Fatima radiallahu anha and he said to her, O oh my beloved daughter, Allah has revealed to me إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ and I do not see except that this is a message to me from my Lord of my imminent death. So Fatima radiallahu anha began weeping. Imam Bayhaqi rahmatullahi relates this hadith in his Dalailul Nubuwa and others also. And in there the story is that Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha was actually watching. And she saw Fatima radiallahu anha whispering to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa when he spoke to her first, all she could see is that um, uh, Fatima radiallahu anha began weeping. Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa whispered something to her again, and Fatima radiallahu anha then began laughing. So what did he say to her? This was it. He said to her, O oh my daughter, Allah has revealed to me the surah, and this I do not see this, but as a message to me that my death is close at hand. She began weeping. The Prophet ﷺ whispered to her, O oh my daughter, do not grieve, for from my whole family, you will be the first to meet me. And that's exactly what happened. Indeed, so the Prophet ﷺ himself knew, on another occasion, there were a number of Sahaba anhum seated. The Prophet ﷺ recited the surah. Soon after its revelation, Abbas, and the father of Abdullah ibn Abbas, because this wasn't immediately after its revelation, at a late stage. Abbas began weeping. Prophet said, why do you weep? He said, Ya Rasulullah, there is the message of your upcoming death in the surah. On another occasion, Umar heard this surah and wept. Remember, the story of the weeping of Sayyidina Umar when he heard this surah, the story of Abbas when he uh, weeping when he heard this surah, wasn't immediately after its revelation. It was later, at a later stage, when Abbas heard this surah on one occasion, he began weeping. When Umar heard this surah on a later occasion, he began weeping, not at the time of its revelation. So both of these companions wept. And there were 
So why? Because it contained the message of the Prophet sallallahu death. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha relates in a hadith that after the Prophet sallallahu received this surah in revelation, he would repeatedly say the word subhanak Allahumma bihamdik, Allahumma khfilli, subhanak Allahumma bihamdik, your glory, hallowed be your name, O oh Allah. And may you be praised. Oh Allah, forgive me. So he would constantly say these words. So when he was asked, the Prophet ﷺ said, Allah has told me that there is a sign which when I see in my ummah, I must praise him and seek his forgiveness. And indeed, I have seen that sign. And that sign is the help of Allah and his conquest and victory. And since that sign has arrived, I am now excessively increasing my remembrance of Allah and my seeking of his forgiveness. Then he recited, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ And indeed, this, this shows that the Prophet ﷺ wasn't a ruler of the world. He wasn't a monarch. He wasn't a conqueror in that sense of the word. He was a messenger of Allah. Because look at the way he forgave, showed compassion and mercy to his greatest enemies. And one thing which you will see about the Prophet ﷺ is his miraculous ability to induce love after hate. He cast love in the hearts of those who hated him the most. The most. Abu Sufyan opposed him. When the Prophet ﷺ treated him the way he did, Abu Sufyan became a sincere believer. Fighting on behalf of the Muslims, even losing an eye in one of the battles. Ikrimah was one of the people, who was Ikrimah, the son of Abu Jahl? Ikrimah was young, and Ikrimah was a rival of Abu Sufyan for influence and power in Mecca. And in fact, by the time of the conquest of Mecca, Ikrimah was almost a rival leader of the Quraysh in Mecca because he was from the dominant clan of Banu Makhzum. He was a son of Abu Jahl, Abu al-Hakam. And he was a vital, young, aspiring individual. Ikrimah was so incensed by Muslim victory that he refused to remain in Mecca and he fled. But the Prophet ﷺ, and he vowed even after, after the conquest of Mecca to continue opposing the Prophet ﷺ. Ikrimah was summoned by the Prophet ﷺ, invited. He was, he was promised protection that no harm will come to you. Ikrimah, the son of Abu Jahl. How could he forget his father's enmity to the Prophet ﷺ? How could he forget his father being killed in the battle of Badr. How could he forget how his father was decapitated in the battle of Badr? How could he forget all that his father and his family and his clan had gone through with the Prophet ﷺ? Ikrimah came, the Prophet ﷺ showed him great love and compassion. After that, Ikrimah became such a sincere and staunch Muslim that he openly declared, he said, I risked my life for the goddesses of Lat and Uzza. Why would I now hold back in risking my life for the sake of Allah? 
And he died as a shaheed in one of the battles. The Prophet ﷺ was able to arouse such love and loyalty that it was unbelievable in his greatest enemies, in all of his greatest enemies. Abu Sufyan was his chief opponent and his daughter was married to him. Huyay bin Akhtab was his chief opponent from the tribe of Banu Nadir in Medina. His daughter Safiya came into his household as a sincere living wife. The Prophet was able, the famous story of one of the tribal leaders of uh, Arabia, the Prophet he was captured, he was tied up in the masjid. And then after three days, whilst tied up to the pillar and observing the comings and goings in the masjid, the Prophet ﷺ gave instructions for him to be released. He was released, he went, did ghusl, came back and stood before the Messenger ﷺ and said, before this day, The most accursed religion in my view was your religion. The most accursed and detestable, detested city in my view was your city. And the most detested face in mankind before this day was your face. But today I openly declare that of all the cities, yours is the most beloved city to me. Of all the religions, yours is the most beloved religion to me. And of all the faces, yours is the most beloved face to me. Ashhadu Allah ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. And because he was a chieftain, he then sent a message to the Quraysh that I am now a follower of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The, there are many examples of the of what the Prophet ﷺ could arouse in his followers of loyalty and love. And this is it, love after hate. It was unbelievable. Many hated him. And yet how did the Prophet ﷺ treat them? The whole, of city, the whole city of Mecca hated him, persecuted him, sought to kill him. How did he treat them? He was not a conqueror. He was a messenger of Allah. That's how we entered the city. And when the whole of Arabia lay at his feet, unlike any other conqueror or ruler, the Prophet ﷺ refused to enjoy the fruits of his victory. Imagine how did he spend his last two years in praise of Allah. Many of you will have heard the Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha relates a, hadith in, uh, relates a hadith recorded by both Bukhari and Muslim. That after the revelation of the surah, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would increasingly say in his ruku' and sujood of salah, سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمَّ بِحَمْدِكَ اللَّهُمَّ اغْفِلِّي سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمَّ رَبَّنَا وَبِحَمْدِكَ اللَّهُمَّ اغْفِلِّي Acting on these verses of the Qur'an, he constantly praised Allah, sought his forgiveness. He would say, I seek Allah's forgiveness more than 70 times a day. In some hadith, more than 100 times a day. But how did he live in, he, in these two final years after his victory? The whole of Arabia lay at his feet. The Prophet ﷺ did not even extend his house. His house remained the same as the first day when he entered Medina. The Prophet ﷺ, well, his homes remained the same. The Prophet ﷺ did not build a palace. He did not extend his home. He did not amass riches. He remained simple and humble as he did. 
even when entry the city of Mecca, he entered bowing his head so much so that his noble head almost touched the horn of his saddle. When he died, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha relates to us that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa when he died, he did not leave behind a single dinar, a single dirham, a single goat, a single camel. All he had was some weapons. And even some of those, his shield, etc., were mortgaged and pawned by a Yahudi of Medina in return for barley which he had purchased for his family. Imagine this uncrowned king and ruler of Arabia in his final days. He bought barley to give to his wives. And even the barley that was bought to give to his wives was bought on credit. And he wasn't credit without security. He had to give some of his possessions as security. And that's the state in which he died. The Prophet ﷺ says, left behind nothing except a small plot of land which he gave away as sadaqah. Even that was given away as sadaqah. That was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds him, you are not a mess, you are not a conqueror or monarch of this world. When the help of Allah and victory come, then prepare for the meeting of your Lord. And that's what these final two verses mean. Final verse. فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَّابًا Hymn the praise of your Lord and seek his forgiveness. Verily, he, Allah, is most relenting. And remember, the meaning of the Prophet ﷺ seeking forgiveness is not that he had sins for which he would seek forgiveness. Rather, the simplest way of explaining this is Hasanatul Abrar, Sayyatul Muqarrabeen. There's a phrase in Arabic that the good deeds of the, the pious ones are actually considered the ill deeds of the ones who are closest. Meaning, the closer a person is, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the greater the expectations, the greater the demand. Sometimes they may say or do something which is not wrong and not a sin, but in view of their position. An example is Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. He was asked, is there anyone more knowledgeable than you? And Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam said to, uh, said to his people, I am the most knowledgeable and there is no one more knowledgeable than me. And indeed, was that correct? Factually, it wasn't. Well, technically, apparently, it wasn't incorrect. Because Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam was a prophet of Allah, the leading prophet of Allah. And the most knowledgeable person, the most learned person amongst the community, is the messenger of Allah. But because of his position, Allah disapproved of him, claiming to be the most knowledgeable amongst his people, even though it was true. So Allah Azza wa reprimanded him and told him that no, Musa, there is someone even more knowledgeable than you in some aspects. Khidr. And then he told him the whole story of Surah Al-Kahf. So Allah actually chided him. The Prophet ﷺ himself, on various occasions, he had two choices before him. Both were right. Both were correct. None of them were wrong. But one was better. And the Prophet ﷺ meant for the less preferred option. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala softly chided him, softly reprimanded him, and correct him. And after correcting him, chiding him, Allah still spoke words of comfort and solace to him immediately thereafter. So the Prophet ﷺ's position was unique, it was very different. He wasn't seeking forgiveness for the sake of sin, rather he was seeking Allah's forgiveness to elevate his rank even further. This is why Salatul Janazah is performed over an innocent baby also. 
even though Salatul Janaza in a way is, is one of seeking forgiveness. But where there is no forgiveness to be sought, then such seeking of forgiveness merely means the elevation of that person's rank and grade even higher and further. And this was the case with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There's so much more that can be said. I'll end with just mentioning that this is the instruction of Allah to everybody, not just the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The one or two lessons that we can take from here is that assistance ultimately comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tawfiq, enablement for anything ultimately comes from Allah. What a person achieves is not out of one's own greatness, but it's because of the tawfiq and the divine enablement of Allah. And one should be grateful to Allah Azza wa Jal for that. This was the method of all the messengers of Allah. And in victory, in, in victory, and I don't mean victory in that sense, but in any personal accomplishment, in, in any personal achievement, one shouldn't gloat or be proud Rather, one should be extremely humble. And that's exactly what Allah Azza wa Jal tells the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam here. And this is what the Anbiya Alayhi Salatu Wasallam would do. It's a very beautiful example. Sulaiman Alayhi Salam. He is regarded as being a great ruler. And Allah Azza wa Jal mentions about him. وَحُشِرَ لِسُلَيْمَانَ جُنُودُهُ مِنَ الْجِنِّ وَالْإِنسِ وَالطَّيْرِ فَهُمْ يُوزَعُونَ And Sulaiman's army. Suleiman's armies were gathered for him of the jinn, of the men, and even of the birds. And they were all amassed and arranged. And then there's that famous story of the valley of the ants. And here Suleiman was marching with his army of jinn, birds and beasts and humans. And they came across the valley of the jinn, uh, valley of the ants. And the, ant, the queen ant spoke to the rest. And the winds, subservient to the command of Suleiman, carried the speech of the queen ant to its colonies. And Suleiman not only heard the speech of the ant, but further, as he said earlier, they were taught the language of the birds and the beasts. They were taught the language of the birds and the beasts. So Suleiman heard the, the, the whispering and the conversation of the ants, and not only that, Sulaiman alayhi salam understood the whole message. What did he do? Imagine, this is Sulaiman alayhi salam, with his armies of jinn, men, birds and beasts, the winds subservient to his command, understanding the speech of the birds and the beasts and even of the insects. That was his moment of pride and glory. What did he do? The Quran says, فَتَبِسَّمَ ضَاحِكَ he smiled and then laughed. But then, what did he say? وَقَالَ And he said, رَبِّ أَوْزِعْنِي أَنْ أَشْكُرَ نِعْمَتَكَ الَّتِي أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِ وَعَلَى وَالِدَيْهِ وَأَنْ أَعْمَنَ صَالِحًا تَرْضَاهِ وَأَدْخِلْنِي بِرَحْمَتِكَ فِي عِبَادِكَ الصَّالِحِينَ He did not gloat. He wasn't proud. He wasn't boastful. Rather, he said, O oh my Lord, grant me the ability to be grateful of your blessings, which you have bestowed upon me and upon my father. And grant me the ability to do good, which pleases you. And grant me the ability, and and enter me in the group of the pious servants. That was Suleiman alayhi salam at his peak. Yusuf alayhi salam, what a beautiful story. Eventually, Sayyidina Yusuf alayhi salam is on the throne of Egypt. 
His brothers come before him. And Allah says, And he raised his father and mother to the throne and the family, his brothers who had opposed him, sought to kill him, cast him into the well, abandoned him, and then eventually sold him. Those brothers fell into prostration before him. He then turned to his father and said, Oh my father, this this is the interpretation and the fulfillment of my dream. And then he recounted what Allah had done for him. And he said, Oh my father, Allah has been kind to me. When he extracted me from prison. And then he mentioned some other things. And look at the story of Sayyidina Yusuf alayhi salam. Cast into a well, abandoned, envied by his own brothers. Uh, they attempted to kill him at first, abandoned him, sold him into slavery, bought to Egypt, sold into slavery, brought to the palace as a slave, exposed to temptation, seduction and fitna, thrown into prison innocently on the charge of rape, attempted rape, languishing in prison for, prison for so many years, removed, gradually climbed up until now he is the lord of Egypt. What does he say? This is his peak. His parents are on the throne beside him. His brothers are in prostration before him. The whole of Egypt with its riches is at his feet. What does he do? Yusuf alayhi salam says, رَبِّ قَدَا تَيْتَنِي مِنَ الْمُلْكِ وَعَلَّمْتَنِي مِنْ تَأْوِيلِ الْأَحَادِيثِ فَاطِرَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ أَنْتَ وَلِيِّ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ تَوَفَّنِي مُسْلِمَوْنِ وَأَلْحِقْنِي بِالصَّالِحِينَ Oh my Lord, indeed you have given me of the kingdom. And you have taught me the interpretation of dreams and things. Originator of the heavens and the earth. You are my master and guardian in this world and in the hereafter. O oh Allah, tawaffani muslima. Take me in death as a Muslim. Wa'alhiqni bis-salihin. And attach me to the pious servants. Yusuf alayhi salam at his peak. Suleiman alayhi salam at his peak. The Prophet ﷺ at his peak. These were not conquerors. These were not monarchs. These were not lords of the worldly realm. These were the messengers of Allah. And for them, especially for Rasulullah ﷺ, when victory came, Allah did not tell him to enjoy the fruits of his victory on earth. Rather, your mission is over. Now the time has come to return to Allah. Thus, in his final days, he feebly stood up, feeble and weak, and he delivered a khutbah. And as part of that khutbah, he said, Indeed, Allah has given a servant of his a choice between the world and the here, the world and his Lord, the world and what is with his Lord. So the servant chose what is with his Lord. Abu Bakr radiallahu and burst into tears. The narrator says some of the others looked at Abu Bakr radiallahu and said to him, said about him and thought to themselves, Mali hadha shaykh yabki. What's wrong with this old man? Why does he weep? Allah gave a servant a choice between the dunya and the akhirah, so he chose the akhirah. Allah gave a servant the choice between the world and what is with his Lord, so he chose what is with his Lord. What is there to weep about that? But none understood better than Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. For he understood that the abd, the servant, was none other than the messenger of Allah.
And he understood that what the Prophet ﷺ meant is that Allah had given him a choice to continue to live in the world or to return to Allah. And he chose that which is with Allah. And that his death was near. None understood better than Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was no conqueror or monarch or lord of the worldly realm. Rather, he was a noble messenger of Allah. And when his mission was accomplished of spreading the deen to the Arabian Peninsula, to the world, the time had come for him to depart and to be recalled unto his lord. And indeed, he did depart. But after his departure, what happened? Did all of his accomplishments come to naught? No. The result is what the world sees. The result is the deen of Islam, the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and his legacy in many ways. He wasn't just a conqueror. There have been many conquerors. Alexander was a conqueror. Genghis Khan was a conqueror. And yet what did they do? Genghis Khan conquered in fact, he conquered, the, uh, and he, his legacy was the largest contiguous empire, land empire the world had ever seen. And yet, it shrunk. All that happened is that his descendants eventually embraced Islam. Alexander was a conqueror. What happened? Upon his, after his death, his generals began bitterly fighting amongst themselves, and his whole empire was carved into different factions, ruled by different generals from his own troops. Eventually it disintegrated. But whether it was Alexander, or whether it was Genghis Khan, they only left behind a terrestrial empire with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This orphan, without brother, without sister, born into that sleepy town of Mecca, Without formal education as we know it, Makkah was not a center of civilization as we know it, or of education. That Muhammad, that young Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam came to be Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam who achieved what he achieved. What was his legacy? Was it just one land terrestrial empire? No. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gave the world an empire, a philosophy, a religion, an ideology. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gave the world a unified language. He gave the world the Qur'an. He achieved so much that no one can compare in him, even looking at it from a secular, non-religious perspective. And that's why he has been hailed by many non-Muslims also as the greatest human being ever, as the greatest achiever, the single most influential person in the whole history of mankind, without doubt. And just as the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were inspired to love and loyalty by the Prophet sallallahu character and person, his character and person, and his memory and his legacy continue to inspire love and loyalty amongst billions, and will continue to do so even after hate. And especially in this climate, with so much being said about the Prophet sallallahu all I will say, not to worry, love after hate. Though there were those in Mecca and in Arabia who hated the Prophet ﷺ with a greater passion than anyone now. And yet, 
The Prophet Wasallam's one touch, one glance, a few moments of his company worked wonders on them. And his legacy will continue to work wonders. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand these words, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ When the help of Allah and conquest arrive. And you see the people entering into the religion of Allah in throngs. Then celebrate and hymn the praise of your Lord and seek his forgiveness. Indeed, he is very he is most relenting. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadul Haq and has been brought to you by Al Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four one two one double seven one three triple seven or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.